Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Molly Rands. And I'm Joanne Hathaway. We're very pleased to have Mark Armitage, Attorney and Executive Director for Michigan's Attorney Discipline Board, join us today to talk about and help demystify the attorney discipline process in Michigan. This is part two in a two-part series on the discipline process in Michigan. Last month, we welcomed guest Michael Goetz, Grievous Administrator for the Attorney Grievance Commission in Michigan. If you've not had an opportunity to do so, we encourage you to listen to the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance March podcast for a full overview of Michigan's disciplinary processes. So, Mark, would you share some information about yourself with our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Joanne. I'm Mark Armitage. I'm the Executive Director of the Attorney Discipline Board and its General Counsel, and I've been doing this for 26 years, still working at it. It's been a great, great opportunity to be involved with the national organization, involved with Mike Getz's office, the Attorney Grievance Commission, and the State Bar, which we rely on heavily. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the ADB? For example, how many board members or where, where they come from? So the Attorney Discipline Board is um, referred to in the court rules as the adjudicative arm of the Supreme Court for the supervision and regulation of lawyers in Michigan. It is the counterpart to the Attorney Grievance Commission. And sometimes people look a little confused when I start to explain it. And I say, just very easy, prosecutor's office, court. You know, we are the tribunal uh, that adjudicates those issues of professional misconduct that are alleged by the Attorney Grievance Commission and Mr. Getz. We have nine members, all appointed by the Michigan Supreme Court. And for some transparency and public participation, we have three non-lawyers involved. And where they come from, the justices have to find them every time there's a, a vacancy and they do a great job. The lawyers are great. The non-lawyers are amazing um, <laughs> as well. We'll have a physician, often a psychiatrist. We'll have an educator, um, an administrator of some kind, either at a college or at a school district. And th this isn't required. These aren't slots that are guaranteed, but they happen frequently. And various people from walks of life, including business, that they're just very helpful. In fact, I mean, they add a perspective that, you, you know, lawyers are very, very protective of their professional status and their, uh, and I mean that in a way of wanting to uh, understand the rules and they may even be tougher than some lay people on some issues like confidentiality or misappropriation. But there was one case where a lawyer was, who had taken estate funds, but he was also a very, very good estate lawyer and wanted to keep his fee. And the non-lawyer said, if I go to a doctor and they cut off the wrong leg, I am not paying that bill. And everybody's like, okay, okay, that issue is done. <laughs> Interesting. So, Mark, can you expound upon the role of the board? The board has two levels. It's uh, The nine members are at once a board of directors that oversees the operation of a trial-level adjudication office, and they also sit as review members or intermediate appellate tribunal to hear appeals from the trial level, which are called the hearing panels. And I should say at this point that 
we have um, a seven-person office. Not every state fully staffs their uh, volunteer adjudicators, but we do. Some of the people here are uh, fantastic and indistinguishable from lawyers as well. The office administrator, I call her one of our better lawyers, and we have <laughs> um, three of us, including me, but I don't often don't count because I'm doing too much administration, but we have two lawyers, two case managers who really help the volunteer panels move cases through a great uh, secretary, secretary receptionist and our office administrator. So that's the staff. And I'm dwelling on the staff a little bit because we're not like your average state agency that has the ability to go here for technology or there for office leases or somewhere else. Like the AGC and Mike Getz's office, we we kind of have to do it all. We're like a little startup and we, <laughs> we're responsible for our website. We're responsible for negotiating leases as they are doing right now. And then running a trial level and an appellate level adjudicative office, the ADB. Mark, you mentioned hearing panels. Can you talk a little bit about those? You know, how many are there? How are they appointed or what exactly their role is? Yeah, we have about 320 volunteer lawyers distributed throughout Michigan's 83 counties. And they sit in panels of three under the rules applicable to a civil bench trial and the Michigan Rules of Evidence. And if, if a formal complaint comes in from the Attorney Grievance Commission, it gets assigned by our staff to a panel in the county, if possible, where the lawyer is accused. And then that panel will, as I said, hear the case, move forward and make findings of misconduct, which uh, are the allegations. This is a pretty much a civil proceeding. And so the formal complaint will say, this rule of professional conduct was violated or that rule was violated. And it's a public hearing. They are operating just as a circuit judge would in a bench trial and making rulings and findings. And uh, occasionally they even dismiss a case. They don't find good cause for it to be brought, but it's, it's rare. More often there's a finding of misconduct and then they move to a second phase. They have a hearing on the appropriate sanction to be imposed so that's the discipline part, but there's also uh, there are also other cases such as reinstatement. If a lawyer in Michigan is disciplined for 180 days or more, they will have to petition to be reinstated, and they will have to prove by clear and convincing evidence to a new hearing panel that whatever problem took them out for that length of time is resolved and that they're a safe bet. I'm paraphrasing the language in MCR 9123B, but it's a long list of sort of character and fitness-like cases uh, or elements that need to be proven to that new hearing panel. So panels do reinstatements, and they also do transfer to inactive when someone's having a problem either involving mental or physical incapacity to practice or substance abuse or something like that. So Mark, how does the discipline system interact with the State Bar of Michigan? Well, I think, and... Um, <laughs> It's important. It's an important question because a lot of the public and even some lawyers, lawyers who have never crossed the path of the discipline system, think that the state bar is involved in this. And that's understandable. In 1935, the state bar was, you know, and it was for many years until 1970 when the Supreme Court created something called the State Bar Grievance Board. And then in, by 1978, it was turned into the two agencies we've been talking about, the Attorney Grievance Commission for Prosecution and the ADB for adjudication. But there are historical ties, thank goodness, um, that help us 
with the regulation and administration of, of lawyers in, in the state. And so in particular, Mike Getz and I have shops to run and we have audits, we have budgets, we have all sorts of administration, we have benefits and things. And it, it's more economical for uh, the state bar, the AGC and the ADB to have their employees together in that pool. We contract for administration and so forth. But I would say from the perspective of ethics and lawyer regulation, we are even more intertwined because of things like the character and fitness process is a logical place to start. I mean, to come into the bar, the state bar does that. We don't do that. We do regulation if they're going to go out or under consideration for having to go out. There's a thing, Molly, you might have heard of this, the Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program. <laughs> I have. <laughs> and its charter has expanded over the years to include not just substance abuse, but all kinds of mental health issues. And it's not at all surprising that a number of the cases that come to the Grievance Commission and the Attorney Discipline Board have at its underlying root a problem that the lawyer is mm-hmm. having. So for us to be able to send them as, as a condition of discipline so that you're not just doing a short suspension or a reprimand, but you're actually having a chance at fixing the problem, that is a tremendous thing. And a similar thing is the Practice Management Resource Center. I don't know if you've heard of that, Joanne. I have. <laughs> <laughs> but there are oftentimes lawyers and um, who either solos or small firms or not always just that, they can really benefit from a consultation and getting stuff together. Because if things are not well organized, things can end up being overlooked and clients can end up not getting the right service. And that can turn into a grievance, and then perhaps discipline if the disorganization is at a certain level. So that's another thing. But I mean, it goes on and on. There's ethics helpline, there are ethics opinions. Those things give lawyers guidance. And sometimes they're, you know, used in the discipline process for an interpretation of a rule or something. And on and on. I mean, unauthorized practice of law that dovetails with practicing while you're suspended sometimes, or the client protection fund. If a lawyer has taken client money and then has no means to repay it, part of the reason lawyers are still entrusted with being involved in their own regulation is because they step up and through an assessment on lawyers pay for clients who've been harmed by lawyer misconduct, lawyer misappropriation. Everything from what Mike Getz mentioned in the last episode, lawyers turning to the back of the bar journal, well, you publish it. And it lets lawyers know who got in trouble and for what, which is often educational. Mark, I'm curious, how many cases does the board routinely deal with? Well, in recent years, it's kind of dropped a little bit, but it it was anywhere between 100 and 200 formal complaints filed with the uh, ADB. I think this last year, 2019, it was about 88 formal complaints. So it's in that range. It goes up and down. There may be a little bit of a drop because of, I think there's an issue with the affordability of legal services, or if you'll notice, the dockets of the federal and state courts have more and more people representing themselves. And so the profession is kind of facing an issue where it may not be affordable for certain simple issues to retain a lawyer. So I think we may have a little bit 
uh, some fewer cases involving lawyers doing what you would call retail law. That could be a, a divorce with no assets or things like that. So there may be some fewer complaints coming to Mike's office, although it sounds like they're getting a good good number, 2,500, 3,000. If you look at it, I sometimes like to put this into perspective. If you look at it as a, as a big funnel <laughs> from the public or from judges or other lawyers or whatever, you've got a 3,000 complaints from the public coming to the prosecutor's office for investigation and a look-see. And then at the other end, 200 or 100 coming to the ADB for actual formal adjudication. That's how we look at it. And if you look at the number of lawyers in the state bar of Michigan, 40, 42,000, and the number of lawyers that end up with discipline, let's say it's 100 at the end of the year, you're looking at less than one quarter of 1% of the bar that ends up in that kind of discipline trouble. So most lawyers are just glad to have us there dealing with the lawyers who absolutely need to be dealt with. Mark, I'm sure everyone's wondering, everybody likes a good story. Um, what kinds of cases do you see most often, but also if you could share information about the unusual cases? You know, there, there are some recurring, like the top three types, I would say, or four maybe, involved neglect. And that's a generic term. It's, uh, it used to be in the Code of Professional Responsibility. It's still in our Rules of Professional Conduct, but it kind of is a cluster of things like failing to communicate with your client, lack of diligence in pursuing their case, lack of competence because you're not spending the time on it. So I, that is a steady 25 to 35%. And it, you know, lawyers are people. So you've got the tremendous public service by lawyers. You've got city council, library board, school board, coaching, all kinds of things. They're doing all this great stuff. And then you've got lawyers who who just maybe are less upright, running meth labs, embezzling funds, <laughs> and driving drunk. That that happens. So what I'm getting at is criminal conduct is a pretty steady 30% of the docket, 20% sometimes. And criminal conduct you don't have to be convicted, by the way. You know, if a prosecutor's office hasn't been interested in it, Mr. Getz's office can do his own investigation and prove by a preponderance to a panel that this law has been violated and the attorney will be dealt with appropriately. So neglect, criminal conduct, and then mishandling money is, is another one that recurs. You've got everything from outright theft of settlement funds or taking a fee and not doing the work, taking an advance fee out of trust account and just spending it and never doing the work. And then you've got other trust account issues. Lawyers have highly regulated trust accounts because they're fiduciaries and they need to keep other people's money separate from their own. And we've got an interesting trend lately where some lawyers who are having problems with the IRS or with creditors try to keep their own money in the trust account, which is the reverse of the problem often. But we're starting to see kind of a little trend there, trying to hide it from creditors and from, and, and that puts everybody's money at risk that's in the trust account because if it's not being used appropriately for just third-party funds, then a creditor or the IRS could come in and say, well, this is just a sham and we're going to take it all. And that puts the clients who have trust funds in there at risk. And we have, you know, just dis dishonesty happens with, with some regularity. It's a shame. Sometimes a neglect case will turn into dishonesty when they, when they, and the sanction will become just 
so much more elevated. It could have been a reprimand, but it can go up to four years in a case, someone who did nothing on a case, a personal injury case, then the statute of limitations was blown and embarrassed to tell the client, so made up a, a false settlement, said the insurance company settled with me, dummied up some papers, actually paid money out of the lawyer's pocket to the client. And then when all of the misrepresentation became out in the open, got very serious discipline for the, for lying to the client and to the hearing panel and so forth. So there are levels of dishonesty that happen. We even had a a guy with a great, great academic record, great employment record in some respects, but always wanted it to be better. And so just fab- made crazy fabrications on, on his resume, said he was on a U.S. field hockey squad that participated in the 1996 Olympics. And that's Googleable. I don't know what he was thinking. It didn't happen. And, you know, and, and said he had a master's from Harvard when he didn't and a lot of other things. So lawyers are people and there's a small percentage that do strange things. We're always interested in hearing those stories, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. However, you have shared some great information, as did our guest from last month, our March speaker, who was Michael Goetz from the Attorney Grievance Commission. So, Mark, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest today, Mark Armitage, for a wonderful program. Mark, if our guests would like to follow up with you, how can they best reach you? The best way to get me is at uh, the Attorney Discipline Board of Michigan. So my email is Armitage, my last name, at A-D-B-M-I-C-H dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Molly Rands. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance Podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.